15. <clears throat> now I have to give you this introduction because last week we started my introduction to chapter 18. We didn't get through all of my introduction to 18. But today, hopefully, we'll get through the introduction to this chapter and then start looking at the specific content of this. But in the introduction, I want to give you a good overview of this chapter. This is a difficult chapter to deal with, and people have interpreted this different ways, have taken different things out of it. I'm not going to tell you that what I believe is exactly right, because we don't have enough substance to say what I believe is, is the truth. Okay, about how to interpret this scripture. But I'm going to give you some biblical substance for why I believe what I believe and why I look at this chapter the way I do, and then you can make that decision yourself. Okay, there are good commentators, there are good Bible teachers who disagree on this passage on chapter 17, how to interpret it. But I'm going to give you what what I see here. So last week we took a quick overview of chapter 18 and how what we read in this chapter is really the representation of the final destruction or the final judgment of God against the world, the people of the world, the leadership of the world, because they have replaced him with not just the world system, but with personal greed. And that's basically what it comes down to. And that, and that is the ultimate God. I mean, that's what Satan wanted in heaven That's why he was thrown out of heaven, because he wanted something for himself that God did not ordain for him. He wanted more position. He wanted to be like God. And in essence, anyone who lives by greed and personal satisfaction has become their own God, and so they take the same attitude, I want to be God, and they choose to be God for themselves. That's the sin of chapter 18. That's the sin of the world all through history. But that's what God is judging in chapter 18. And so as we looked at last week, this economic system fueled by the greed of the world is fanned here by the influence of Satan and his demons who are now on the earth at this point in the tribulation, confined to the earth. But the desire for prosperity, I mean, all through history, not just in this time, the desire for prosperity then, just as it is now, is linked to the ultimate worship of Satan. That's what we saw in chapter 17. All false religion comes down to, I want my life, I want my worship, I want my religion, whatever you can add in that blank, to be defined by me, not by God. And that's the real lie that Satan gives to people, is that you can define your own life, you can have what you want, you can... Speak it, and it will become yours through your efforts, through your wisdom, apart from God. And so God is judging all of that in chapter 18. Chapter 18 is the economic part of that. 17 was the religious part of that. But it all comes from the same motivation out of self. And so as we get into chapter 18, I want to show you what the Bible says about chapter 18, but that's the big picture here, okay? So today we're just going to read the first three verses. I don't know if I'll get through all of that, but we're going to read the first three verses, and then I'm going to try to put this in the context of what the Bible gives us here. Chapter 18 starts, it says, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. I'm going to stop just for a second. Remember, this is John receiving this vision 
from the angel at this point, the angel showing him these things. And so this is John recording this for us. In verse 2, he says, And he cried, talking about the angel, he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Now I'm going to take a pause right here and pray, because we need to do that so that God can teach us what we need to learn. So let's do that now. Father, we just ask for your intervention now. We need your help to understand your word. And Lord, this is not my wisdom. I don't want to be up here giving my opinion. I want you to be speaking to us through the context of the truth of your Bible that you've given to us. So Lord, I pray that your spirit will guide us through this time. Help us to understand the things and to put into perspective all of these things according to your truth. Lord, I need your spirit to fill me, to give me power, to strength, wisdom, might of mind and might of voice. But Lord, we need to hear from you. That is our intention today. And so teach us, we pray, and accomplish your work during this time. And we thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as we look at chapter 18 again, I want us to remember this basis of self and greed. That comes straight from Satan, that is at the root of everything that we're going to read here. And this is what God is judging. Okay, The temptation of of Satan has been through all time for people to look at what they can get for themselves instead of what they can give to God. Okay, So as we looked at last week, this introduction of this economic system, and I described that for you, how it's going to look in the end times, and what I believe it's going to be based upon, but it all starts with Satan. It all is rooted in Satan. And as we describe the context of chapter 18 as symbolic of a godless economy of greed and personal gain, this chapter doesn't just refer to a system, it also refers to a city. All right, And I'm going to spend some time looking at that context, because we need to understand that to get a picture of what's actually happening. Now, in the Old Testament times, as I mentioned before, there was the city of Babylon. And this last two chapters, 17 and 18, focus on the city of Babylon. But it's the system which it propagates as well. But the city of Babylon was synonymous in Old Testament times with power and wealth, as well as symbolic of humanism, of heathen worship and idolatry. Remember I described back in chapter 17 how basically any false worship that we see in the world today came out of the root of what Babylon stood for way back in the time of Nimrod. Remember, back in Nimrod's day, Genesis chapter 11, this is just a few hundred or a few generations after Noah. And Nimrod was Noah's great grandson. But Nimrod built up the city of Babel. He was at the, the uh, focus of the whole Tower of Babel. That was his project. Okay? But that's where all of this, in a sense, began with Satan after the flood. It was the renewal of Satan's energies upon the earth and trying to sway mankind to depart from God. And Nimrod here is at the height of it with the beginning of building of Babylon and the Tower of Babel. So that's where it all starts. Then we go forward to Nebuchadnezzar. And remember, King Nebuchadnezzar was the king at Babylon's height of grandeur and power. Um, He had 
basically conquered the known world or much of the known world at that point and was the greatest king of that time. And Babylon itself, his capital city, was one of the grandest cities on earth, not just at that time, but through history. He had made it a place of grandeur, of wealth, of prosperity, of power. That's what he stood for. And remember, in Nebuchadnezzar's story, God humbled him because he lifted himself up above everything else, above God himself. And God made him to crawl on the ground like a beast and eat grass. So God humbled him because of that pride. But that's what Babylon stands for. Okay, That's what it has stood for all through Scripture. And if you want to read through the Scriptures, an interesting way to look at the Bible is this contrast of Babylon and Jerusalem. Babylon being the symbolism of humanity, of humanism, of greed, of sin, of false worship. Jerusalem then being the symbol of God's people, of God's blessing, of worship of the true God. Now I know it actually didn't happen that way all the time through Jerusalem's history, but that's what those two cities symbolize and stand for in Scripture. And so we have that total contrast And remember, when we get to chapter 19 and 20, when Jesus comes back, where is he going to set up his kingdom? In Jerusalem. Okay? So here we have the Antichrist focused and centered in Babylon. Jesus comes, the real Christ. He will be in Jerusalem. But I believe what we read in chapter 18 here is talking about the city of Babylon, not just the system, that's included, but it's talking specifically about prophecy regarding the city of Babylon. Many commentators say that it's just referring to the system that we talked about last week. But I want you to look, and we're going to look specifically at some verses here, five times in this chapter, Babylon is referred to as a city. If you go to verse 10, Okay, it talks about those who are uh, lamenting its destruction, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour thy judgment is come. Jump down to verse 16. Again, these people who are lamenting and saying in verse 16, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. Verse 18, and they cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what city is like unto this great city? Okay, it's a literal burning of a city here. Verse 19, and they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, alas, alas, that great city wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness, for in one hour she is made desolate. And then down verse 21, A mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city, Babylon, be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. So I I take the approach of trying to interpret Scripture literally. I think God has given us a literal description of a city. Okay, now there's a lot of symbolism, there are a lot of um, symbolic things in Scripture, but when God gives us this description in chapter 18 over and over and over saying this is a great city, I think we have to take that as we're talking about a city here. So we're talking about the city of Babylon. Now it does represent this system that we talked about, but we're talking about a city here. 
In addition, if you go back into the Old Testament, there's several prophecies which allude to the final destruction of the city and the kingdom or empire of Babylon as well. Isaiah chapter 13 and verses 19 through 20, it says, In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees, excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were literal cities. God will literally overthrow Babylon. And then it goes on in verse 20, It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation, neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. Now, if we're going to say that these Old Testament prophecies are only referring to when the Medes and Persians came in and overthrew the kingdom of Babylon, I have a problem with that. Because in verse 20 in Isaiah, uh, chapter 39, it says specifically, I'm sorry, verse chapter 13, it says, the city shall never be inhabited. It's inhabited today. There's people there. So this prophecy has not been fulfilled. If you go to Isaiah 47.1, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon, sit on the ground. There is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldees, for thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. That means that this, the leadership, the kingdom that was represented by the city will be no more. Isaiah 47.11, Therefore shall evil come upon thee. Thou shalt not know from whence it riseth. And mischief shall fall upon thee, thou shalt not be able to put it off. And desolation shall come upon thee suddenly, which thou shalt not know. Now, these do, in a short term, refer to the Medes and the Persians who conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. But Scripture has many prophecies in the Old Testament, and I don't want to call it double fulfillment, but it's a short-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment where the short-term gives us a picture of what is to come. And so the destruction or the overthrow that the Medes and the Persians brought in 539 when they came in and took over Babylon was just a picture of what's going to happen at the end times when Jesus comes back. Okay, Jeremiah 50. And Jeremiah 50 and 51, by the way, are probably the most thorough description of the prophetic, uh, of the prophecy of the destruction of the city of Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon as a whole. Just a couple verses in chapter 50 of Jeremiah, verses 1 and 2. The word that the Lord spake against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans by the Jeremiah the prophet. This is a literal person speaking to a literal king who is in charge of a literal city. Verse 2, declare ye among the nations and publish and set up a standard Publish and conceal not, say, Babylon is taken. Boy, that sounds familiar. We just read that in Revelation chapter 18. Babylon has fallen. Okay? It says, Babylon is taken. Bel is confounded. Merodach is broken in pieces. Those are the gods or the idols that were in Babylon. Her idols are confounded. Her images are broken in pieces. If you go to chapter 51 of Jeremiah, verse 43 and 44, it says, her cities are a desolation. That's the cities of the kingdom of Babylon. A dry land and a wilderness, a land wherein no man dwelleth, neither doth any son of man pass thereby. And I will punish Bel, there's the gods again, in Babylon, and I will bring forth out of his mouth that which he has swallowed up, and the nations shall not flow together any more unto him. Yea, the wall of Babylon shall fall. So when Isaiah and Jeremiah were prophesying about the fall of Babylon, it was a city. And it wasn't just restricted to that conquest of Babylon in 539 B.C. That was a short-term fulfillment, a picture of what's to come. 
What is to come is what we read in Revelation 18. Okay? So when you read through, and, and there's many other passages in the Old Testament that are prophetic about the city of Babylon and the kingdom of Babylon being overthrown. But when you read through the entirety of these, uh, entirety of these passages, they prophesy the total destruction of Babylon with no inhabitants left. That hasn't happened yet. Okay? So we can't be just limited to that initial overthrow of Babylon in 539 B.C. Many commentators will go back to that. In fact, many of the commentaries that I read referred to that overthrow of Cyrus the Great when they came in and overthrew Babylon. But there weren't a lot of people killed, actually, at that overthrow because people were so fed up with Belshazzar that they basically gave up as soon as the Medes and Persians walked, remember, they, they diverted the Euphrates River. They waited under the wall, came in in the middle of the night. In the morning, the people woke up, and there was the Persian army in the middle of the city. And they were like, oh, well, well, we've got new leaders now. Okay, and that's basically what happened. So there wasn't a lot of death and destruction at that overthrow. There will be in Revelation chapter 18. Okay. Now, in chapter 18, there's one more point I want to show you. Look at verse 10 in Revelation 18. It says, they will stand afar off. This is the people who are lamenting, and I read this verse before, but I want to show you something. They will stand afar off in fear of her torment. In other words, they don't want to suffer the same fate. But they will say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon. And then what's that phrase? For in a single hour, your judgment has come. The entire city will be destroyed basically in an hour or in one moment, in one event. Look at verse 17. In a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. Verse 19. They threw dust on their heads and they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by their wealth. For in a single hour, she has been laid waste. That didn't happen yet. Okay, going back to Isaiah 47, verses 8 and 9. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. I shall sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. Isaiah 47 tells us that this destruction will happen in one day. Babylon was not overthrown in one day in 539 B.C. In chapter 18 of Revelation, it will happen in one day, in one hour, probably. Here's the big point that I want you to see. <clears throat> Babylon has not ever been totally destroyed and made desolate the way these prophecies tell us it will be. Okay, It's coming. It still has inhabitants there. And the prophecies say there's not going to be inhabitants there. So this has not happened in all of history. In fact, Babylon is in the process of being rebuilt okay, and re-inhabited. Back in early 2000, Saddam Hussein began rebuilding Babylon. He was interrupted by a war in 2003 that took all his money and attention away from the rebuilding of Babylon. Saddam Hussein called himself the son of Nebuchadnezzar. 
And his goal was to rebuild Babylon in the grandeur that Nebuchadnezzar had done. That's, that was his purpose. He said that publicly. Okay? The city will be rebuilt. That's the point I'm trying to make. Now, there are a lot of people, and good commentators as well, who say, well, this is talking about Rome. Because we're talking about a revival of the Roman Empire and in this, this system of the Antichrist. And so this is Rome. It's not literal Babylon, because Babylon is rubble, basically. It's not a whole lot going on there right now. So we're talking about Rome. Could be, and I mentioned this to, uh, to you as we looked at chapter 17. Remember the seven mountains upon this, which this system sat. And they say, well, Rome is the city of seven hills. And I told you the, the problem I have with that is the word in the Greek for mountains is mountains. It's not hills. There's a different word for that. So it's a loose interpretation. I don't think we're talking about Rome here. I think we're talking about the literal city of Babylon. And someday that city will be rebuilt to the grandeur and to the power and to the influence that it had when Nebuchadnezzar was alive, and probably greater. Now, anybody here following the news that comes out of Babylon lately? I mean, I know it's interesting. I know it's relevant to us today, right? It is relevant to us today, and so I'm going to share some of that with you, okay? In April of 2006, this was a front-page story in the New York Times, okay? Talking about Babylon, Babylon, the mud-brick city with a million-dollar name, has paid the price of war. It's been ransacked, looted, torn up, paved over, neglected, and roughly occupied. But Iraqi leaders and the United Nations officials are not giving up on it. They are working assiduously to restore Babylon, home to one of the seven wonders of the world, and turn it into a cultural center and possibly even an Iraqi theme park. The United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization is pumping millions of dollars into protecting and restoring Babylon and a handful of other ancient ruins in Iraq. UNESCO has even printed up a snazzy brochure with Babylon listed as the premier destination to hand out to wealthy donors. This has been planned for years, and it's already happening. What's more... In 2009, the Obama administration contributed $700,000 through our State Department towards the Future of Babylon project, explaining that Babylon stands among Iraq's rich contributions to humanity. That was our former president. Babylon has contributed a whole lot to humanity, and it's all described in Revelation chapter 18. On January 5th in 2009, the largest at $474 million and the most expensive U.S. embassy in the world opened in Baghdad, not far from Babylon. It's a United States embassy built in Baghdad just next to Babylon. It's 104 acres. It's got 27 buildings. It's as big as the Vatican City. You could fit, uh, let's see. Uh, Let me just read. It says, 104 acres, 27 buildings, is situated on the banks of the Tigris River and includes 619 apartments for staff, restaurants, basketball and volleyball courts, an indoor Olympic-sized swimming pool. It's known as Embassy Baghdad. It's the largest of its kind in the world. It is the size of 80 football fields with a population of 5,500, a small city. The United States built that next to Babylon. Why? 
because we're expecting big things in that area. In July of 2019, so much progress had been made in Babylon or on the Babylon Project that Babylon was named a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's becoming a worldwide focus. And just a few weeks ago, I, I actually read an article that cited recent studies naming Babylon as the ideal geographical location for a worldwide trade center. Now, you think Revelation chapter 18 is just obscure and God doesn't really know what he's talking about? It's happening right now, folks. I mean, whether we realize it or not and whether we've stayed up with the news or not, Babylon is being rebuilt at this moment. Now, I don't know if the Antichrist is alive or has presented himself in the world stage. I mean, we don't know who it is yet. He hasn't taken power But we see the pieces of Revelation 18 already falling in place overseas. Henry Morris wrote this book called The Revelation Record. He has this to say, Never has a great world city had such meteoric rise as New Babylon. Never will one experience such a cataclysmic and total fall. Babylon on the Euphrates has lain dormant and foreboding for centuries, but mighty Babylon is not really dead. Suddenly it will rise again under the impact of overwhelming geopolitical needs. It will be authorized and implemented by the unprecedented building program undertaken by the federal ten-kingdom empire of the West, then pushed to dynamic completion by the beast. That's the Antichrist. Finally, it will be inaugurated as the great world capital of the beast who will have become the the king of all kingdoms of the globe. Okay, it's happening in our lifetime, folks. I mean, we talk about the end times, we talk about revelation, and I think it's going to be a lot sooner than what a lot of people expect. And so as we read chapter 18, I think it's pretty clear that God is talking about a city, and the city is being rebuilt already. Now, Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51 are probably the most thorough prophecy concerning the destruction of Babylon. Many commentators look at those chapters, and I've read a couple verses, but I want to show you something, and I think it's worth taking the time to do this. But they will look at this and say, well, that was fulfilled. And so we're not looking at a literal city, or that's symbolic of Rome, or even say some, some say it's symbolic of Jerusalem because it's going to be destroyed eventually and rebuilt and it's going to be taken over by the Antichrist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, okay? I think they're talking about, I think Jeremiah is talking about Babylon, the city, okay? I'm going to show you the comparison between Jeremiah 50 and 51 and Revelation 18, okay? Look at verse 2 in Revelation 18. It says, And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, the hold of every foul spirit and cage of every unclean and hateful bird. In Jeremiah 50, verse 39, it says, Therefore the wild beasts of the desert with the wild beasts of the island shall dwell there. The owls shall dwell therein. It shall be no more inhabited forever, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. Habitation for animals only. Chapter 51 of Jeremiah goes a little further. And Babylon shall become heaps a dwelling place for dragons, an astonishment and a hissing without a habitant. Sounds just like Revelation 18 too. 
Look at verse 3 in Revelation 18. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. The merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Now let me read Jeremiah 51, verse 7. Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunken of her wine, therefore the nations are mad. It's not a coincidence that these sound similar, folks. Verse 4 in Revelation 18, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Jeremiah 51, 6, Flee out of the midst of Babylon, and deliver every man his soul. Be not cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He will render unto her a recompense. Start to see the picture? Verse 5 in Revelation 18, her sins have reached unto heaven. That's an interesting phrase, and I'll explain that when we get there. And God hath remembered her iniquities. Her sins have reached to heaven. Jeremiah 51, 53, though Babylon should mount up to heaven, though she should fortify the height of her strength, yet shall from from me spoilers shall come to her, saith the Lord. Verse 6 in Revelation 18, reward her even as she rewarded you. Double unto her according to her works in the cup which she hath filled, filled to her double. And God's saying basically the torment, the, the, the plagues that she has unleashed upon other nations of the world, specifically Israel, will be doubled unto Babylon in her judgment. Jeremiah 51, verse 24, I will render unto Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea all their evil they have done in Zion in your sight, saith the Lord. Jump down to verse 18 in Revelation 18. And they cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? In Jeremiah 51, verse 25, God says, I will make thee a burnt mountain. In verse 30 of Jeremiah 51, they have burned her dwelling places. Her bars are broken. Verse 19 of Revelation 18, they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city wherein were made rich all that the ships in the sea by reason of her costliness, for in one hour she was made desolate. In Jeremiah 51, verse 43, her cities are a desolation, a dry land, a wilderness, a land wherein no man dwelleth. Okay, you see the parallels. Jeremiah 50 and 51 is nothing more than a precursor to Revelation 18. It's the same content, talking about the same place, the same judgment, the same city, the same God, the same purpose. This one threw me. Look at verse 20 in Revelation 18. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, ye apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. Seems like that verse is just kind of stuck in there in the middle of chapter 18. But we've talked about, remember the bitter scroll that John ate about God's judgment. It's sweet in our mouth because God's finally enacting his judgment upon sin, but then when you realize the the people that will suffer eternal damnation, it's bitter in his stomach. But here is a reference to that. God is saying rejoice over her. Rejoice over the destruction of Babylon because of the great sin that is brought to the world. Jeremiah 51, 48, Then the heaven and the earth and all that is therein shall sing for Babylon, for the spoiler shall come unto her from the north, saith the Lord. It's the same thing, folks. This, this, this prophecy has not been fulfilled in the destruction of Babylon in 539 B.C., It is a city that will be rebuilt, that is being rebuilt, that the Antichrist will take charge of, will have his headquarters there. 
and it will be destroyed in a single day. That, that's chapter 18 in a nutshell. Okay? Now, here's an interesting thing. The prophecies that Jeremiah wrote were about 590 B.C., about 50 years before Cyrus and Persia came in and overthrew Babylon. What we're reading in Revelation 18 was recorded about 600 years later. Revelation 18 can't be talking about what happened in 539 B.C. It was more than 500 years after the fall of Babylon to Persia and the Medes. But it's the same destruction. It's exactly the same. So all of that just brings us to this one point. I believe it's a city that we're talking about in Revelation 18. Not just a system. It's not Rome. It's not Jerusalem. I believe it's Babylon. Babylon, that great city that will be restored, that will be rebuilt under the Antichrist. And why I say that, but also I want, to I want us to understand it's not just the city that will suffer, it's the entire world because the entire world will be under that influence that comes out of that place. And remember, Babylon, as I mentioned, it was the center of evil, the Euphrates River. Okay, That's where the Garden of Eden was. That's where the first sin was committed. That's where Nimrod built the Tower of Babel. That's where false religion in its essence today started. We have people like Nebuchadnezzar that ruled there. If we go back into Scripture, or into Revelation, we also remember it was the Euphrates River that released the hordes of demon armies that come against the earth and destroy a third of mankind. So we're talking about this specific area of Babylon, the city itself, but it's the influence that it has in the world, the sinfulness that comes out of it that has addicted everyone who follows Satan. And that's what chapter 18 is talking about, the destruction of the center of all that and the final judgment of God against that sin. Babylon represents rebellion against God, period. In chapter 17, it represented the false worship and rebellion against God. In chapter 18, it's a rebellion of those valuing their pocketbook over the God of the book. In chapter 19, when we get there, it will be rebellion in an all-out military war against Jesus Christ himself. But Babylon has always represented rebellion against God. And that's why I think in chapter 18, he describes this judgment in such detail for us so that we can see that God does not tolerate sin and does not overlook it. Now, many times we might think, well, look at the way the world is going. Look at all these bad things that are happening, all these bad people that are prospering. God will strike them down in his time. The judgment is coming. And chapter 18 is testament to that. And John has given it to us as a vision that he received from this angel because God wants us to know that he is not going to let that kind of sin just go without punishment. So this is God's pronouncement of judgment here. Now, I'm going to take just a couple more minutes. We're going to look at the first couple of verses because I want you to get what John is saying here as we get into this chapter. Okay, So verse 1 
looking at the actual text. It says, after those things, another angel came down. This angel that we see is coming to pronounce this final judgment against Babylon. It says another angel. Remember in chapter 17, um, there was one of the seven angels, the seven vials, remember, who showed John the destruction of the false worship. In that chapter here, he says, okay, there's another angel, not the same one, but another one of similar kind, and he's coming to proclaim this message. But this angel has three features in verse 1. First, he comes from heaven with great authority. It says he has great authority. The only authority that is that exists comes from God. So obviously, he comes from the presence of God with authority to fulfill God's command and God's judgment. And here, he's proclaiming God's judgment with authority. Babylon is fallen, he says. So he comes with authority. Second, it says the whole earth is illumined with his glory. This gives us a, an essence of coming from the presence of God as well. Remember when Moses went up on the mount, and he didn't even see God face to face. He just kind of got to see God's glory as God passed by. And then when he came down from the mountain, his face glowed so brightly, the people of Israel couldn't even look at him. Now, multiply that by millions of times. And this is what we have here with this angel appearing. And remember, we're at the end of the tribulation period, and I believe this is going to be the seventh vial poured out, and I'll show you that in a second. Okay, But the seventh vial poured out, or the fifth bold judgment, or fifth vial, plunged the whole kingdom of the Antichrist into darkness. Now, these judgments are boom, 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 remember, the last seven judgments. So the whole earth is in darkness, and all of a sudden, an angel appears that illumines the entire earth with this pronouncement. Okay, that's the picture we have here. Third, the angel cries with a mighty voice in verse 2. It says, the mighty voice, he cries, giving this message. And the word, the mighty voice, means a voice that will be able to be heard all around the world. No one will miss this. We're in darkness, we're suffering, all of a sudden this angel appears illuminating the whole earth and now he speaks with this voice that everyone can hear very clearly. And what is this message? Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. It's a message that we've heard already because Jack, back in chapter 14, verse 8, we have a message of, remember there's three angels who flew over earth and brought messages. The second angel in chapter 14 flew over the earth and had the same message. Babylon has fallen. It was a proclamation of prophecy, of judgment that was about to come, but in God's perspective, because God proclaimed it, it has already happened. In the Greek, it's called the aortis tense. It means basically, even though it's future, we look at it as already done. And that's how we, the same thing we hear, Babylon has fallen. The judgment hasn't come yet. The angel's proclaiming it. But the angel's basically saying, just expect it. It's going to happen because it's a decree from God. And so we look at it as past. But that's the message. And it's the same message that we saw in Jeremiah 51 as well. Now here's the reasons for God's judgment very quickly. In verse 2, he says, The city has become the dwelling place of demons and a prison for every unclean spirit. The words that are used here, is the Greek words for a hold or a cage, not the, the dwelling place or prison. It's a hold or a cage. Now, I want you to remember back in Revelation, if you were here when we studied these, in chapter 12, I'll just 
remind you. In verse 9, the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. They were cast out of heaven from the presence of God about the midpoint of the tribulation. This is going to happen, and they are confined now to the earth. They can't go into the atmosphere. They can't go above into the heavens. They can't go before God to accuse the brethren. They are confined to the earth about the midpoint of the tribulation. Where will they be confined to? Where will Satan set up his headquarters? Why not Babylon? That's where it all started. Okay? And so this hold or cage becomes the city. And here's one of the reasons why God is going to judge it is because when Satan takes his headquarters there, then all of the sin of the world is coming out of that place. So Babylon is the center of the sin of the world at that point, and God's going to judge it. And he's going to judge all of those demons and Satan as well. In, the ninth, in chapter 9, during the fifth and sixth trumpets, Satan is given the keys to the abyss. He loses hordes of demons uh, in the form of locusts upon the earth to torment man for five months. And then right after that, in chapter 9, in, ch- in verses 14 and 15, the sixth trumpet happens, and... Satan unleashes four demon spirits, or four demon spirits come up out of the Euphrates River. Oh, wait, let's, where's Babylon? Oh, it's on the Euphrates River, okay? But he loosed his four angels out of the Euphrates River, and when they're loosed, a demon army of 200 million strong comes upon the earth at that point to kill a third of, the man, of mankind, Smoke and brimstone and fire, remember that? Okay, it's all right here at Babylon. Then we get to verse 3. In verse 3 it says, All nations and kings and merchants have followed in her immorality and corruption. Now we saw this last week. I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining this because we saw this last week. The influence of Satan upon the world. The Holy Spirit in the church is gone. I mean, the Holy Spirit's not gone, but the church is gone. That influence is gone. The restraining hand of God against evil is gone. And so the influence that Satan has upon the earth is just immense, like it has never been before. And so all the earth will follow him. The whole world will be drawn into this corrupt system, both religiously and economically, except for those remnant of believers that will be saved during the end times. But look at the description in verse 3. All nations, all kings, all merchants have followed after her in immorality and corruption. Nations. That's the political system of the world. The political system will be totally corrupted by Satan. And now we know politics is not controlled by money, right? It's free from that, obviously. And if you believe that, I've got a bridge I'll sell you in Brooklyn, okay? Politics absolutely is controlled by money. Here it is in Revelation 18. Then it says kings, individual world rulers. They're not controlled by money, right? Mm -hmm. And then merchants, those people who do business, who profit from the goings-on of the world. And we're talking here about merchants in our day. Let me put it in an understanding perspective. It's the big corporations and the head of corporations. It's the banks and the banking system. It's the stock markets and the investment companies. It's even the small businesses and entrepreneurs that are drawn into this system 
of making money because that's all that matters in life. Because that's what drives people who don't have God. Personal, profit, and prosperity. That's why people are drawn into false religion because they want personal, profit, and prosperity and that's what false religion promises them. And so all of these organizations and nations and world leaders and commerce and the politics will be getting rich and living high on the hog, as it were, from Satan's corrupt system in the world, from the center of sin, and that's really all it is. It's just sin magnified like we've never seen it before. And God says they've been made drunk with this immorality, this corruption, replacing God with whatever pleases you. Now, interestingly, I read that article talking about making Babylon a worldwide theme park. What is a theme park intended to do? Give pleasure. And for the owners, make money. That's the world in chapter 18. And it says all the world has been made drunk with this immorality. They've been drawn into it. They're addicted to it. And then look at verse 4. God gives the command, I heard another voice from heaven. It doesn't say who it is, but we assume this is God speaking, saying, come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sin, and that you receive not of her plagues. Now, I alluded to this last week, but here's a reminder for us. We cannot be part of that system or be drawn into it and still be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. God gives the command to those people who are believers in the end times to come out of there. Now, literally, not just to be drawn into the attraction of the prosperity and the promises of wealth and all of that, but literally to come out of the city. Why? Because God's going to destroy that city. It's going to happen. But God's call is effective for us as well, and it applies to us because we can't get drawn into that. Now, I just gave you all of that information because it's easy in our minds to go, it hasn't happened yet. We're not there. Babylon's not rebuilt yet. It's in the process. It could happen in our lifetime. That's the point. Okay? We have to make Revelation relevant to us because this could, par- could happen in our lifetime. Now, as I said before, I believe the Bible teaches we won't be here. The church, those who truly are followers of Christ, will be in heaven at this point. So we won't have to suffer through this. But if all of a sudden you come to church one Sunday and you look around, there's only one or two people left, and you start to wonder what's going on, and then all the people that you saw as believers are not here, then you missed it. There's something that wasn't genuine about your faith. And then you will go through this. And if you find yourself here stuck, I want you to remember this message, and I want you to remember this call from God, because that's the only thing that will save you at that point. But it's the only thing that will save us now. That's the point. The message hasn't changed. 
If we are caught up in our lives in this system of the world and in the sin that Satan promises, all the prosperity and wealth and health and all the rest of it, we're not going to be true followers of Jesus Christ. He made that illusion back when he talked about the parable of the, the sower. Remember the thorny ground, the cares of the world, all the riches, all the things that tempt us? It chokes out spiritual life. And so God says here in verse 4, come out of her. Don't be part of it. Don't get caught up in it. Don't get entangled with his deception. There are many who will. But don't be one of those. Now I'm going to stop there. And we'll come back next week. And we'll pick up at verse 4 and then go forward. But I, I I want us to realize this is literal stuff that we're reading in Revelation, and it applies to us today. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you again that you have given us all of these things in your word, and even these things that are hard to understand sometimes. Lord, it applies to us. You have given it to us because it's important for us to understand. And Lord, help us to heed the call to come out of Babylon, not to get caught up in the pleasures, the attractions of this world, not to live for the fulfillment of those things but to truly follow you, to seek you with our life, and as you've told us in your word, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness so that we know who our God is and what our future is. Thank you for this message. Help us not to forget it as we go from this place and teach us to live faithfully as your followers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close our service this morning.